Washington Post announcing that they have put 20 people to dig into every single phase of your life. Are you prepared for what's coming? It's not if it's coming, but when it's coming. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because every hour we're getting calls from reporters on the Washington Post uh, asking ridiculous questions. And I will tell you, this is owned as a toy by Jeff Bezos, who controls Amazon. Amazon is getting away with murder tax-wise. He's using the Washington Post for power so that the politicians in Washington don't tax Amazon like they should be taxed. Donald Trump versus the press. It was one of the marquee rivalries of this primary season. Even as Trump received nonstop media coverage, he attacked the press as biased against him, using this as a rallying cry at his events. On Twitter, he emerged as an unlikely and frequent media critic. At a press conference last month after he had already locked up the nomination, Trump lashed out at the media following reporting on his delayed donations to veterans groups. Uh, but I will say that the press should be ashamed of themselves. I'm not looking for credit, but what I don't want is when I raise millions of dollars, have people say like this sleazy guy right over here from ABC. He's a sleaze, my book. You're a sleaze because you know, you know the facts and you know the facts well. Go ahead. This month, Trump took his feud even further, taking the unusual step of banning the Washington Post from covering his events and adding to a growing roster of blacklisted media organizations. But overall, Trump's relationship with the press has been complicated, more symbiotic than truly fiery. Trump received the vast majority of media attention during the Republican primary, a factor, his rivals said, that enabled him to win. This is Trailhead, a podcast by Real Clear Politics. I'm Rebecca Berg, and in this series, we're exploring the quirky markers on the path to the nominating conventions through some of the standout moments in this year's primary process. Most reporters would admit that they did not foresee Donald Trump's rise, even as it unfolded right in front of them. After Trump locked up the nomination, Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank literally ate his words, cooking up one of his columns for lunch. Here we are at the Washington Post World Headquarters. I'm uh, seated ready to uh, eat my words literally from uh, what I wrote uh, uh, last uh, October 4th saying uh, if Donald Trump is, uh, wins the Republican nomination, I will eat the uh, the page on which this column is written. But I covering George. any presidential campaign is a challenging, sort of bizarre exercise. Reporters try to take a fluid, fast-moving stream of information and bottle it for readers of all political persuasions across the country. We try to bring voters along with us on the campaign trail, with our stories, our tweets, even our Snapchats. Some reporters are out on the road for weeks or months at a time, totally immersed in the process. The general election might be the championship round, but there is nothing like covering a presidential primary, where there is more access to the candidates and they either find their footing or they fail. And then there was the zany, vexing process of covering Trump, or as the case was for a few banned outlets, trying to cover him. For some perspective on what it was like to report under these conditions, I spoke with Jason Noble. He's the chief political reporter for the Des Moines Register, one of the news outlets blacklisted by Trump during the primary. But Noble and his colleagues got creative and they found ways around Trump's ban. 
There was an event uh, down in Pella, Iowa. Um, this was in January, I think, uh, that I covered. And so I stood outside uh, with the crowd for two hours in the you know less, uh, 20 degree or colder weather. Uh, and then didn't actually get into the space where Donald Trump was. I got into the overflow room. So I, you know, sat in the corner of a, like a gymnasium or something and watched Donald Trump on a big screen. Uh, and that, you know, that was sort of the, the, the media experience for Donald Trump, watching him mediated through a screen, you know. Uh, and then, and that was such an interesting thing because, you know, we were, we were denied credentials. We didn't get to sit in the media area and have sort of the logistical benefits of that. Uh, I wasn't even in the room with them. Uh, but then at the end of that, uh, Donald Trump came into the overflow room and, and interacted with that crowd. And that was actually uh, an experience that I don't think any other reporters got because they were, you know, their access was very controlled and, and they weren't able to follow him into that part. So I actually got this angle on him that no one else did. I first met Noble when I was a college journalism student, and he was a reporter at the Missouri State Capitol, so I'll be the first to admit that I'm totally Team Jason here. But the fact is, a presidential candidate banning any news outlet from a campaign is pretty much unheard of. Free press, fourth estate, etc., etc., and blacklisting the Des Moines Register, that is the premier newspaper in Iowa, in the lead-up to the Iowa caucuses, it's just not done, unless you're Donald Trump. Well, I think it, first and foremost, was uh, a stunt that, that played really well with, with his base. I mean, I think a big part of, a critical part of his messaging is sowing distrust and disbelief in what, you know, his supporters think of as the mainstream media. And, and so by, by making us all out to be you know, liars who have this vendetta against Donald Trump is beneficial to him. And what better way to show that he's being sort of tough and strong against those liars than barring them from his events? When the practical effect, like like I said, is not, you know, all that meaningful. We, for the most part, we still got into the events. Uh, we still were able to cover him. And in some cases, we actually got better access to uh, his supporters it might be that Noble took all of this in stride because the Iowa caucuses, the first contest in the primary season, tend to be a choreographed circus from start to finish, framed for the horde of media that descends on the Hawkeye State every four years. Well, you know, my first week on the job with the Des Moines Register was uh, in early August of 2011, and I started on a Tuesday, and that Saturday was the uh, Iowa straw poll, which, uh, you know, is sort of this high point in the, the media circus aspect of the caucus campaign, or at least it was when, when we had a, a straw poll. And so right away, you know, starting in on, you know, at the register and on the political beat, I was sort of thrown into the, uh, the most kind of crazy aspect of, of you know, the, the media circus around it. And so that time in, in 2011, we had the straw poll where you had all the candidates Bussing in their supporters and feeding them free barbecue and hundreds of reporters around that that one also had a debate a Fox News debate attached to it um, so from the start I, I really saw this uh, experience the caucuses as a media circus as well as a, a political contest. <laughs> 
you know, some of the the scholars of the, the nominating process and of, of caucuses history will tell you that it's a media event first and foremost. There's a, a book, kind of a, the Bible of the caucuses called the Iowa caucuses, the making of a media event. And, and so to a certain degree, everything that happens here in the Iowa campaign is sort of for the benefit of us, the reporters who are taking this story, you know, out of the pizza ranch and, and bringing it to uh, the country as a whole. If that sounds like it would make our jobs easier, well, that's not always the case. Reporters often swarm the same Iowa events and write the same Iowa stories 100 times over. But covering the Iowa caucuses can also yield some truly illuminating glimpses of candidates, especially early in the process. And as an Iowa-based reporter, Noble is afforded a unique perspective here. But I remember covering Michelle Bachman on the day of the caucuses, and she went to this little sort of retail shopping area in one of the Des Moines suburbs. And it was, it was nothing but media. It was nothing but cameras and tripods and people elbowing each other. And there was just no way that that was an authentic experience. Uh, but, you know, if you go back to uh, early 2015, maybe even late 2014, Bernie Sanders was out meeting with, uh, you know, these, this liberal activist group uh, having house parties and everyone was overlooking him at that time, and, and no one was really taking him seriously. And so those were really authentic uh, interactions and moments that he was having. And then, you know, even when it's sort of a meta event, sort of a, a made-for-media for kind of thing, you can you can find the little moments. And I remember last, I think, July, I went out uh, to Cedar Rapids, again with Bernie Sanders, and he walked a picket line with some uh, employees of uh, a corn processing company and, you know, held his, his union sign and kind of marched with him up and down the street. And that clearly was, was a play to the cameras. Uh, but that was also something that you could only imagine Bernie Sanders doing. Uh, you know, certainly no Republican was, would put themselves in that situation. It's hard to imagine Hillary Clinton doing that, too. And so that really, you know, telegraphed something important about his candidacy and the way he was going to run his campaign. These are the sorts of vignettes that only spring from Iowa and New Hampshire with their truly unique campaign rituals. And that's why every four years, the national press does swarm this turf just for a glimpse of a candidate eating a pork chop. There, there's really a, a kind of a community that develops. Uh, you know, you've got network embeds who literally live here, usually are living like in a hotel room in Des Moines and are out all over the place. And then there's the reporters from all the national outlets that are uh, assigned to a particular candidate. And you get to know all those people and, and really sort of develop a, a friendship. And it's sort of an interesting dynamic where you're, you're competing with these people and you want to get information before them and beat them on stories and all of that. But you're also sort of in this together, you know, and that, that was something I don't think I was prepared for when uh, or I didn't expect when I first started on the job. And, and right away, you know, all these, you know, network embeds and, and people were, were about the same age as me and, and were, had the same perspective and, and we just clicked right away, you know, and that was, that was really cool. There is truly remarkable comedy among most competing reporters, and Noble is a gracious host, welcoming the national press to his beat. I mean, as, as a professional, I, I love it. I love the opportunity to, to compete with and and you know, and practice journalism with 
the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and NBC and, and NPR. You know, I, I, I kind of relish that opportunity. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that, you know, if you go back to sort of the, the political science theory of the caucuses and stuff, one, the media is really central to the, the caucuses' place and, and the fact that it remains first in the nation. Um, and it's because the media enjoys Iowa and, fight and finds value in Iowa, too. You know, if the, if the media, you know, the, the monolithic, uh, the mythical, you know, monolithic media decided that Iowa wasn't important, they weren't going to cover it, then the caucuses would go away just like that. But but they find value in, in coming here and, and, and holding, you know, these these small retail events and, and getting a sense for the candidates that way and watching how a campaign, you know, runs an operation in a in sort of the controlled space of Iowa. Uh, so I... It's obviously good for Iowa. The the media, the national political media, finds value in it, and and I see it as a way to, you know, practice my craft as a journalist uh, at the highest level without having to leave home. It's great. But with these reporters also comes a stark challenge: producing a story that is different from the dozens of others being written about the same campaign events. Well, I think you've got to go into uh, those kind of events looking for something besides the stump speech. You know, it's it's trying to track who's there and what, uh, you know, what demographic within the party that crowd represents and if there's any really influential sort of organizers and, uh, you know, grassroots type people there who, who might be signaling that, that this candidate is catching on with a particular, you know, subgroup within the party. Uh, I mean, I, I think, especially on the Republican side for Iowa, that's that's sort of everything. You know, who is is winning over the uh, you know the homeschool community in Iowa? Who is is winning with the suburban uh, quote unquote moderate Republicans in the you know in the Des Moines suburbs? Uh, and and you can you can get a sense for that. Uh, by attending these events and, and seeing the way and seeing who's there and talking to them and, and hearing what issues are resonating with them, you know, instead of just sort of listening to what they say and, and, and writing it down and, and just kind of transcribing the, the event, the first thing you need to do is kind of walk in and say, okay, what are they trying to accomplish with this? You know, what, what is the, what, what is, what does this campaign need to accomplish at this phase in the game and how is this event getting them there? And, and taking that kind of big picture view of it. You know, I remember uh, on the campaign trail with Michelle Bachman, there was this point in the campaign where, you know, now Michelle Bachman is a, a social conservative, uh, very sort of uh, her, her evangelical faith was very important to her, and she was talking about that regularly. But there was this point uh, in the campaign where she started talking about um, Ruth from the Old Testament, you know, over and over, and that became like this this kind of fixture of her her stump speech. And it's like, okay, why why are we telling this particular Bible story at this moment? And what I found out was that there were people within the evangelical community in Iowa who were saying, uh, we have doubts about uh, Michelle Bachman as uh, as a woman. We don't we don't know that a, a woman could should be president. 
And so she brings out this story of, of Ruth from the Bible, which is about uh, a woman taking on you know, these leadership responsibilities within the, the community. Uh, and and she, she's making the religious case for why she's qualified to be president as a woman. And you, know, you had to kind of take a step back from, from the messaging on the campaign trail and, and zero in on that particular part of it uh, to get the broader picture. As we saw in this election cycle, reporters are also faced with a weighty responsibility to try to cover a party's entire field fairly, no matter how large. The Des Moines Register is under particular pressure in this regard. We really see ourselves as a statewide newspaper of, of the you know, sort of newspaper of record for Iowa. And so when it comes to the caucuses, we really make an effort to be everywhere and to cover every campaign or every, every candidate event. And now, you know, when Rick Santorum is doing six stops a day for four days out of a week, that's not always possible. But, you know, we, we really try to, to have the presence there as long as they're in Iowa. Yeah, there's definitely some judgments that go into the way that, that candidates are covered. Um, you know, I think that's why we, we try to have the objective metrics alongside uh, the coverage. You know, you have polling and uh, fundraising and advertising spending and all of that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one of my real frustrations as a as a reporter is that some of the most important aspects of a campaign are the, the parts of it that we never see and that the campaigns don't always aren't always willing to give us access to. And a lot of that is the organizing side of it and the uh, kind of get out the vote aspect of it. And and you know, you, it's really hard to tell how truly organized a candidate is. And, you know, you look at Rick Santorum in, in 2012, and even, I think, uh, Marco Rubio and, uh, to an extent, Ted Cruz in 2016, you couldn't – it wasn't evident that the support was there for them until very late, you know, and, and, and how, how do you sort of gauge the work they're doing behind the scenes beyond uh, – you know, the pizza ranch stops and the, the messaging to the media, because that's, that's where it really matters, especially in a place like Iowa, where organization is so important and, and you're dealing with such a small pool of voters. And if you can convince, you know, 30,000 people to support you, you're going to win. Sasha Eisenberg is a reporter for Bloomberg who has earned a reputation as an expert reporting on the inner workings of campaigns. But in his first presidential race, he hardly covered this at all. In 2008, he was assigned to cover John McCain for the Boston Globe. Not writing about other parts of the campaign, by and large. And um, I, it was only after that election that I came to realize that there were a lot of people, um, especially in the Obama campaign, but also in the McCain campaign and some of the other primary campaigns whose jobs had absolutely nothing to do with what the candidate said or where uh, he or she said it or all of those big kind of questions that have to do with message strategy or communication tactics. But following the McCain campaign proved useful in its own way affording remarkable access to the candidate and insight into what made him tick. You know, we would be told the schedule that said, you know, basically show up at the, be in the lobby of the Best Western at 815. Um, and usually I would show up and basically I would spend a day 
sitting next to him as we drove from, you know, six or seven events over the course of that day, some town hall meetings, some other stuff. Um, and in between every stop, you know, me and a small handful of reporters, um, you know, there were a lot of days where times the Washington Post did not have somebody staffing him. Um, the networks had a couple of embeds. Uh, usually there was somebody from the wires and, and sometimes a local New Hampshire reporter. Um, but, you know, six, eight of us maybe, um, sometimes, you know, two or three. Uh, and I would often sit next to him, which I knew I was sitting next to him because he would have his hand on my flapping my thigh more often than one usually expects from uh, a a reporter one covers, uh, a candidate one covers. Um, And uh, it was basically a a free-for-all with no staff interfering, um, no need to ask for access in advance, totally open-ended conversations, to the point where there were days by the end of it where I really had run out of things I could possibly want to talk about with him. Um, often we would start the day where like he'd have a bunch of newspapers under his arm and it would be like, you know, he would have seen some of the news or sports center in his hotel room. It would basically be like, Hey, did you guys see this this morning? How about that? I mean, it was, it was so unstructured. It was type of unstructured time that, um, if you really get with a candidate at any level, let alone a presidential candidate who's going to want to be his, his party's nominee. Many candidates perceive access to this extent as a huge risk. What good can come of reporters peppering a candidate with questions without any limitations? But Eisenberg found that this access improved his understanding of McCain and, in turn, his stories about him. I just had a far better lens into what drives McCain, what kind of animates and what his real priorities were. I think I have a pretty good ear for for hearing what he uh tends to say, um, and that's a, you know, I think back on it, that was an incredibly candidate-centric way of covering campaigns. It's so far from the stuff I do now. I mean, I I was out on the trail covering the primaries for a few months, and I, I, I went to fewer than a half dozen campaign candidate events over over the course of, of, of two months. Um, but McCain was just this remarkable opportunity. If I'm going to be writing about the candidate, I, I, I was able to get more into his head and kind of reconstruct his thinking and decision-making um, than I could ever imagine after uh, a daily newspaper reporter being able to. Occasionally people do magazine profiles where they really get that. But I was able to use that to inform stories I was doing on a regular basis about a whole lot of things. And I, I just think it, it, it um, made him a kind of richer character in the stories I wrote about him than most presidential candidates are in the stories that yeah, beat reporters write about them. He was like, he was like, a, he was a three-dimensional human being in a lot of the stuff I wrote about him. What Eisenberg does now is indeed a departure from his coverage in 2008. After that election, he wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine on campaigns using behavioral science and data to inform their political strategies, and he later wrote a book on that topic called Victory Lab. If you haven't read it, by the way, I recommend it. Basically, since then. You know, in, in 2012 for, for Slate and um, in, in for the last couple of years for Bloomberg Politics and in a few other places where I've, I've uh, freelanced stories for, for magazines or elsewhere, I, um, I've almost entirely focused on the parts of the campaign that don't involve the candidate. And so um, I'm uh, 
really interested in all sorts of aspects of campaign mechanics, but the the people who are generally absent from the stories I write are the candidates themselves. And um, I've become more and more conscious of that because I've sort of come to, the more I understand about how campaigns work, the the more I come to feel that um, the media as a whole or spend disproportionate time focusing on what the candidates say and do and, and, um, and ignore the fact that, that so much of what else happens that, that shapes election outcomes is happening because of decisions that are made elsewhere inside these institutions and try to understand, you know, how those work, um, uh, has kind of become my, my specialty. But I tend to be drawn to stories about things that are new or neat or cool or potentially important that campaigns are doing. Um, so, which is one reason that, uh, I've barely written a word about the Trump campaign this year because from a mechanical perspective, there's kind of nothing that fits that category. Let me underscore just how unique this approach is among political journalists. Even in our increasingly segmented media, the vast majority of political coverage still focuses on the candidate. It's easier for one because the candidate puts himself constantly in a position to try to attract media attention. Candidate holds a rally, we show up, and we write about it. Boom, there's a story. But we are also drawn to human drama, and there is less of that in fundraising, analytics, digital communications, and grassroots organizing. And those stories aren't right there for the taking. They demand cultivating more sources and digging deeper. It is, on on one level, easier to write about the candidates, and as news organizations shrink, um, it becomes harder to justify if you have, you know, a couple of reporters uh, assigned to, you know, cover the Democratic primary or the Republican primary to give somebody the, the time and space that's necessary to develop a sort of technical expertise um, uh, that I think is required to do these stories well. I, you know, I was lucky uh, that I was able to spend, um, you know, some part of a year working on, the, on that piece for the Times Magazine in, in 2010 and, and developing uh, a base of sources and knowledge and then go spend a year writing a book um, that certainly deepened my understanding of, of some of the technical stuff, gave me a, a range of sources who either wouldn't have talked to me or wouldn't have opened up the same way. Um, uh, if it hadn't been a book project. Uh, and so, you know, the book went off to the printer in the fall of 2011. And I realized that, you know, I, I hadn't set out to give myself, a, a you know, a, a, a proper education in, in campaign data or analytics. But of course, of preparing this book, I had that. And I had a, a sort of understanding of how some people doing those jobs in and around campaigns think that I wouldn't have gotten if I hadn't spent the better part of two years kind of immersing myself in that world entirely apart from deadlines. Um, and so, you know, and I read a lot of academic papers and enlightenment stuff. I, you know, I, I, I couldn't an amount of time that no newspaper reporter, magazine writer, TV producer, or correspondent would ever have the freedom to do. Most news organizations won't commit resources to these types of endeavors. But many news outlets also hew to an outdated style of coverage. There are too many news organizations, I think, that still, uh, 
try to kind of cover the waterfront on every development um, and given resources don't have the ability to free people up to become specialists on, on policy or on states or regions or on aspects of the campaign um, or on types of stories. And, you know, there's still probably, you go to a campaign rally, you know, you go to, and I go to far fewer of them now, but, but, um, you know, there's still dozens of generalists covering Hillary or Trump in, in largely redundant ways. While we're talking political journalism pet peeves, here's an interesting one that irks Eisenberg in particular. I think there's a huge misunderstanding of the differences between primary and general elections. And I think that this ends up uh, weakening the coverage of both primaries and generals. I think in, you know, um, there is far more certainty and structure in general elections than most political campaign reporters suggest, you know, and, and the whole, we saw this a bit in 2012 where there were all these moments that people said we're going to be game changers. And it turned out when you look back over the entire of the year, you know, the polling rate remained, you know, with a few small exceptions, almost entirely stable over the course of the six months leading up to 2012. Because there's a lot of structure in American politics, you know, 85, 90% of voters' choices are entirely predictable because they are behaviorally Democrats or Republicans. There's a very small share of people, given polarization, uh, who are really persuadable. Um, nothing, for, you know, for 90% of the electorate, nothing can move them. Not a gas, not a good debate performance, not a vice presidential selection. Um, uh, and so campaigns can have some impact at the margins. They can have an impact in, through mobilization on turnout. But, um, but by and large, the things that happen in day-to-day campaigns are not going to change the overall opinion structure of the electorate. Yet we have a uh, political media that tends to run around every time something small happens and say, is this going to like dramatically reshape the contours of the race? And like, the answer is almost always going to be no. And yet, hour to hour, you would, you would imagine that we were susceptible to massive swings of 30, 40, 7, 9, whatever points based on some small thing that somebody did or some little bit of oppo that gets dumped. The fact is that those types of swings are uh, very much possible in primaries. And we saw this in 2012 during that period where there was a new Republican front runner every few weeks because there was no party structure within a primary electorate that it predicts voters' behavior. So if partisanship is the biggest predictor of, a, of behavior in a general election, um, there's kind of nothing that, that gives that shape uh, in, a, in a primary. New piece of information to a voter or a, an event like a debate um, can easily move somebody from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio uh, in a way that wouldn't move them from Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton. And so um, uh, and, and so I, but I think that reporters bizarrely bring some certainty to a primary that they should bring to a general election. And so things that they're said in a general election, like, you know, well, this is a horrible day for Hillary Clinton. This really gives Trump an opportunity to close the gap. No, probably not. 
But a really bad day for Marco Rubio, like, could give Jeb Bush the opportunity to close the gap because getting, like, 10% of Republicans in New Hampshire who like Marco Rubio now to like Jeb Bush, like, that can happen because there's not a lot of difference between them. In his own coverage, Eisenberg has veered away from covering the candidates and has produced some truly unique stories as a result, like this one during this election cycle around the Iowa caucuses. I did a story that ended up... Um, coming out the night of the Iowa caucuses probably went up. Okay. Um, it uh, probably went up on the Bloomberg politics site within 90 minutes of uh, Ted Cruz being Claire's winner of the caucuses. Um, that was, I think the headline was something like how Ted Cruz won Iowa. Um, and it was a reconstruction of, of what he did. And, it, you know, probably it's not, it wasn't a um, particularly novel storytelling type. It was pretty close to the type of um, reconstructing narrative that the news weeklies would sort of always do, you know, how can your heart one New Hampshire type of things. Um, but it was very much through the lens of uh, his campaign mechanics. I mean, Cruz was like not even present in the piece. And the main character is Chris Wilson, who's the, uh, or was the uh, chief pollster and director of analytics on the uh, Cruz campaign. It wasn't as difficult as one might imagine to get the campaign to agree to sort of open the kimono on what they were doing in Iowa, because it was part of a broader story that they wanted to tell already. This is an important point. Reporters' access is often limited to what the campaigns will permit them, and so the best reporters know how to sell a campaign on their story idea to gain that access. I've, I've gotten far better at understanding how campaigns work and in ways that I often feel a little gross about. I'm able to go to... Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, I, I have good relations with a lot of folks who actually do the work in campaigns on the data and tech sides. Um, and uh, so often they, wanted co they want to cooperate and show off the types of things that they're doing that often take place in secret. And so often they're advocating to the press shop, and I'm not having to deal with spokespeople or press secretaries as my primary point of contact on the campaign. Um, uh, and so often, you know, they're already hearing from their data director that we have something cool and we'd like to tell Eisenberg about it, um, which is already a better starting place than me going in and kind of cold calling and saying, hey, can you, I want to do a story about your micro-targeting. Can you, you know, tell me about it? Um, uh, but the other part of it is that, like, I, I've, gotten better at understanding how campaigns think, and, and this is the part where I feel uh, at times borderline gross, is um, I'm able to kind of understand what they want to accomplish and their incentives and make a, an informed pitch about why they should cooperate with me at a certain point, because I understand the types of stories that they want to tell. That's just a much better place to start a conversation uh, where I need them to buy into to this um, then, uh, not just having gone in and said, Hey, here's a story I'd love to do, you know, please. Um, I don't want to put too happy a face on, on reporter campaign relationships, but, um, 
I kind of ended up in the spot where I don't get cursed at as much anymore. At the same time that we, the reporters, are jockeying for the campaigns to let us in, we saw in this primary just how crucial it is for them to get their message out, particularly in the face of Donald Trump's dominance in the media. We all heard a lot of grief from the non-Trump Republicans about the amount of coverage that focused on Trump, and there was a lot. But Eisenberg thinks that was on them, not on us. You know, all the other candidates understood how to make news. The idea that, you know, Donald Trump um, discovered some new way to get the media to cover you a lot, everybody who worked for Jeb or Rubio or Cruz or Walker or whoever, if we'd gone back to the spring of 2015 and we'd said, hey, um, if your goal were to dominate cable news coverage all day um, and increase your number of followers on Twitter or Facebook or whatever the sort of social media metrics are um, and basically steal news share from your opponents, what would you do? And they would say, well, I'd, I'd pick fights all day long with, with other people. I'd be really unpredictable. I would make people like, you know, I would, I would say things that are unexpected. I would be um, occasionally provocative. I would go, I would just get my guy out there all the time. And then, you know, and then you'd say, well, why don't you do that? And they'd say, well, um, you know, I don't want to pick fights that my guy isn't going to win. Um, uh, the more I put him out there, the more likely it's to make a mistake. Uh, I, I think it's more valuable to have him calling local party officials or donors um, than putting than having him spend all day uh, in green rooms and satellite studios. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't if I put him in all these. Uh, why would I put my Republican guy on MSNBC or CNN when he'll just get beaten up? Um, I don't want to put him out there unless we have something that we want to push. Well, right, you give all of these very good reasons that align with the short-term incentives of a politician, which is you don't want to provoke unnecessary conflict. You don't want to put yourself in situations that you don't control. Um, those all make sense. Uh, uh, and I don't want to diminish my guy or, or cause him embarrassment or humiliation, right? Those are all very sensible things if you're both trying to win this election, but also not wanting to win in a, in a way that, uh, not wanting to lose in a way that leaves you worse off uh, in a couple of years, not wanting, wanting to antagonize people within the party, um, not wanting to uh, turn off donors by having um, uh, picked the wrong fights. I mean, all of these things. And so, and so they knew how, how they could do this. The fact is that Trump didn't care about any of those long-term incentives. And so he did all the things that you do if you want tons of media coverage. And, um, and he has dealt with the costs of that, which is, He's overwhelmingly unpopular. There was one instance in the primary when a candidate tried the Trump strategy, and it was an interesting case study. It was on the table for them to run Trump-like candidacies. And, and you know, we saw for, for 24 hours what it looked like when Marco Rubio tried to do it, and it worked for him in that window. You know, I, I wrote a piece about Rubio's analytics team. They've been trying to quantify all year in... Um, the value of the free media that the candidates were getting, because they, they thought that Rubio's greatest asset was his sort of telegenic qualities. Um, and, you know, for most of 2015 and early 2016, 
Donald Trump not only got almost every day more coverage than any of his opponents, but got a majority of impressions in front of Republican primary voters when all 22 Democratic and Republican candidates were coming together, right? So you have 22 candidates, and Trump is getting over 50% of the exposure. The first day that Marco Rubio got more exposure than Donald Trump uh, was the day when he started making dick jokes. Um, they, knew, they knew go that wasn't like, you know, some magical formula that they stumbled upon. Um, uh, and if he had wanted to, but there were a lot of days over, over 2015 when Rubio and Cruz deliberately sat back and didn't say anything interesting. They didn't engage with their opponents. They didn't draw any contrast. They didn't say anything new about policy. They didn't tell you anything new about themselves. Um, and they'd made a kind of strategic calculation that it wasn't in their interest to do that, and they suffered for it. It's easy to second-guess our coverage of this primary season and of the Republicans in particular. Were we fair enough, equitable with our time and our resources, focused on the things that matter most? Maybe not always. But we're just telling the story, and some of the onus is still on those who are actively shaping it. I mean, maybe in some imaginary universe, we cover everybody equally, regardless of whether they're saying the same thing today that they said yesterday, um, and regardless of whether they're um, introducing conflict or tension that helps voters make choices, but that's kind of what we cover. And um, I don't think that the media did an especially uh, bad job um, in in approaching 2015, given given what we had to work with. To be sure, I puzzled over this question with many of my colleagues during the primary, and none of them thought that we covered this cycle perfectly. Reporters do tend to be pretty self-critical. Still, many have agreed that Trump received the coverage his candidacy warranted relative to his rivals. Here's Noble again. At the end of the day, newspaper or you know journalism uh, pursues what the audience is interested in and is looking for, you know, and, and it's sort of meritocratic or, or maybe sort of market driven in that way that, that we're pursuing the stories that, that the audience wants to hear. And as uh, sort of sad as that might be to say for people who, who enjoy uh, and, and, you know, policy and think that's really important and, and however, you know, whatever the implications are for democracy, I, I guess we go where the audience goes and that, I mean, you know, without a doubt over the last year or so has been the, the Donald Trump show. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I'm not necessarily defending that, but I'm, I'm not apologizing for it, I suppose. I mean, and look, when we're talking about Donald Trump, I, I think the, the proof there is, is in the polling and the, the votes that were cast. He, he was the, the choice of a plurality of Republicans. And and that suggests, I think, that the media's coverage of him, maybe maybe not the manner in which the the manner of the coverage, but the volume of the coverage, I think the results bear out that was appropriate.
As the primary winds down and it becomes clear who will win each party's nomination, there is still one major decision to make. Next week on Trailhead.